You are now listening to Let's Be Honest with Just Jonda. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to a special edition to our Just Jonda Legal Breakdown, also known as our Just Jonda LBD, here on the Let's Be Honest with Just Jonda show. It seems like you just heard from me. Well, I know it doesn't seem like you did just hear from me barely, what, 48 hours ago, talking about this case. And just when I thought I was going to come on and give you some commentary as it relates to the closing, which while we're filling a little time, I will do now. Instead, we are coming back to actually talk about a verdict being reached in this case. So while we're waiting, they're expecting to do it sometime between 3.30 and 4 um, Minnesota time, which here for us on the East Coast is between 4.30 and 5. So I figured I would come on now so that we can cover the time period and just sort of catch some folks up, uh, talk a little theory, and get right to it. I have my news on as well, so I'm going to hear it with the rest of you all, subject to any delays when you're watching different networks. So uh, just in case you want to know which station I'm tuned into, I am on MSNBC. So if you're on there, then we're kind of in time together. They already have somebody in the courtroom, so they're ready. We're literally looking at the seal of the state of Minnesota. So just to recap, this trial went on for three solid weeks, or if you listen to this show, it I would say it went on for four and a half weeks because as I spoke to you, as I explained to you way back when this all began, right? It seems like a million years ago, for me and for most people who practice law, I can't imagine anybody who practices feel any differently. The case starts when you go into the process of voir dire, which is the process of seating a jury. How you compose that jury is just as important as anything else because your jury is the trier of fact. Now, going back to some of our initial stuff, excuse me if you hear some shuffling papers because clearly we did not expect this, but I do have my original notes from uh, when the jury was seated. So we're talking about a jury of two white men, four white women, three black men, one black woman, and two women of mixed race. They didn't say, um, they didn't speak specifically to that. And there are several alternates, which were two white women and one white man. And as we know, uh, one of the alternates was dismissed or maybe actually one of the potential jurors was dismissed during voir dire. And I believe one of the alternates were seated right away because yesterday 
when the judge adjourned the jury, and we're talking yesterday as in April 19th, I'm gonna try and use dates because I don't know when everybody is was listening, but uh, yesterday when this all happened, um, the judge said, the two alternates come with me. So I believe one of those alternates receded. So we do know that we have a jury that certainly is not homogenous in um, sex or race. So that's a good thing. That's what we were hoping for. I'm sure that is what the prosecution was definitely hoping for. So that is where we stand with the jury. So as I said, this all began really a little over a month ago. Another thing that happened at the very beginning of this case was that one of the charges that is a part of this case now, which is the third degree murder, was put back into play in this case because many people, and I must admit I didn't realize either, that coming into this, when the case was about to literally go to trial, Wadir, the whole nine yards, there was two charges at play, not three. And part of that is because the charge that I'm actually gonna talk about quite a bit in a few moments, unless the verdict starts, of course, that the charge of third degree murder was removed by Judge Cahill, who is the presiding judge, Judge Peter Cahill, because he did not believe that this, that that charge applied. And that's not an unusual ruling. In fact, it was that, that issue being appealed in another similar case, sadly, that allowed for that charge to come back into play. So just a quick and dirty on it. There's a case, uh, the state of Minnesota versus Muhammad Noor. That case is also a police brutality resulting in death case as well. Uh, that case began uh, several years ago. So it preceded uh, the George Floyd case. So needless to say, that case has been working its way through the system for quite some time. Third degree murder was also charged in that case by the prosecution. The judge in that case also felt that it did not apply. So um, the prosecution was uh, the, the prosecution was unable to proceed on that case. The prosecution actually appealed. So in so that case was already on appeal, which of course helped things not to get delayed in this case because. This the prosecutors in this case also appealed, but needless to say, their appeal was much more recent. In late February, early March, uh, the the Muhammad Noor case made it to the Minnesota Court of Appeals, and in their wisdom, because they knew that this matter was also going to have a trickle effect in another very big case that was already set with 45 witnesses, so on and so on, that they ruled immediately on that case. And they ruled that third degree murder could indeed be used in cases where it was an actual um, 
personal killing, I guess the best way to put it, whereas one person like killing another one right in front of their faces. And so when that ruling took place, they remanded the Derek Chauvin case back down or Chavin case back down to Judge Cahill to review his ruling, which was a nice way of saying change this crap. And literally on the eve of trial, Judge Cahill did reinstate that charge. So that is the long and short of why we are uh, why we have that charge. Now, why is it important, especially given that I have given it that much of an explanation? That is important because, at least in my opinion, that is the easiest verdict for the for the prosecution to get in this case that is not to say that i don't believe that they have enough for um second degree manslaughter and maybe even for second degree murder but the third degree manslaughter is or the third degree murder is such a huge easy catch all that if the jury couldn't decide on anything else that was the easiest one to come to. And that is because the standard is fairly low. And of course, you know, in, in court, we talk about burdens of proof and we talk about the elements that must be reached in a case. Well, in this particular situation, the elements for third degree murder, which is why there's always this sort of push and pull as to when to use it and when not to, and this, believe it, has this Court of Appeals ruling has definitely opened up a can of worms. Right now we're talking about it in terms of the this case and the Muhammad Noor case, but it it is a it is a situation that from a defense perspective, like I'm I am a 20-year defense attorney. So from a defense perspective, it's very scary because all you need in this situation. It is that a person put into motion a set of actions or a circumstance where it showed that they had a conscious indifference to the outcome. In this case, the outcome being um, an assault, a serious assault or death. So that's not quite, that's not very tough. It's not like the second degree where it's pretty much felony murder, but with assault, where you've got to prove that there was intent to commit a serious assault in order to then get to the fact that it resulted in the death and, and so on and so forth. Because even though the intent there isn't to kill, there is still an intent to commit a serious assault that could result in, you know, maiming, disfiguring, or death. And the intent is always where these criminal cases, any criminal case, gets hung up when you don't have a defendant who announces, I am going to kill you because or if there isn't some kind of relationship or causal connection that you can find to say, oh, well, it's obvious he intended to kill his wife because he wanted the insurance money. So there is at least evidence, however circumstantial, of intent 
because that's really what you're trying to get at when you're looking for a motive. The whole point in looking for a motive, in, which is the reason why someone does something, is to get at what? Intent. So you don't have any of that as it relates to third degree murder, which is very similar to manslaughter when you talk about heat of anger and all of that stuff. So that is what makes this third degree murder charge so desirable from a prosecution standpoint, especially if there's any concern that they may not be able to reach the standard of the other two. Because the reality of it is that you can, the jury could have gone in the back. And I, I actually said this, I believe on Sunday when uh, Eva Zelson and I were talking. And if you have a moment, that was a great episode and Eva's wonderful. So please go and listen to that. Despite the fact that we were talking about the trial, we were talking about um, racism in general and the criminal justice system. So it's still, the conversation is still very timely and sadly will be timely for years to come. But my, uh, but anyway, getting back to my point, uh, I felt, and I still do, that the jury, uh, if they did convict, would be the most likely charge would be the third degree and they may do second if they may do the second degree as well because you they can find the person find him guilty of more than one but that they were likely to find um him guilty of the third degree because if you have them go in the room and they do their initial straw poll and say okay before we even get into any discussions and waste one another's time with, you know, going back and forth, who thinks he's guilty? Who thinks he's not guilty? Okay. Well, all of us think he's guilty. So let's say everybody said, well, I definitely think he bears some responsibility, but I'm not entirely sure that it rises to the level of um, second degree murder, which is that he went and in, he intended to commit an assault or a serious assault resulting in some time, some type of maiming, disfiguring or death. And then someone else says, well, I think he did, which would be the second degree or someone else says, well, okay, fine. I just think that he acted badly and he should have known as a reasonable person that committing this action and doing what he was doing was likely to result in the death of the of George Floyd. And so at that point, the third degree gives them sort of a, it gives them a catch on and out, if you will, to say, you know what? This is something that we can agree on. It's not, it doesn't rise to the level, even though they're not supposed to think about punishment, but people are human, so we know they do. They're not supposed to think about punishment, but they're not stupid. They know that, you know, a third degree is lower than a second degree. They're not idiots. They can tell that if, if you're not an idiot, you kind of know that just because the elements are so less, so much less stringent than the other two. At that point, as I said, it gives the jury an out. 
because they can simply say, okay, well, let's find him guilty of this third degree murder. It basically covers everything. It covers the fact that what he did shows that he didn't give a damn whether the person underneath him lived or died, but it doesn't go so far as to say that he wanted to kill him. He just didn't give a damn. And, you know, however some of us may feel like, well, what's the difference? We know uh, once emotions and everything are pulled out of it, there is a difference. And so third degree murder, I think, is definitely on the table. Um, I also think that second degree manslaughter is also on the table because, again, we're not talking about the intent. Anything that pulls intent out of this and doesn't have the jury going back and forth debating and going back and uh, doesn't have the jury going back and forth debating about whether or not um, about whether or not he intended to do it versus didn't intend to do it. Any charge that does that is a good charge. And the second degree one does, does that as well. And the second degree one takes it a step further and says, okay, not only was he indifferent to what happened here, not only was there some disregard on some level of life of, of this person's life, but it takes it up a step higher to say, his behavior, the defendant's behavior in this case, showed an, a, that their actions were unreasonably risky. Their actions went to the degree of, had, of showing that they behaved in a way that was an unreasonable risk. They consciously chose to do an act without disregard for others. And so that piece is quite concerning, but at the same, it's, it's concerning to have to deal with people like that in real life, but that gets you where you need to be. So my prediction for this would be third degree, uh, third degree murder or second degree manslaughter. I just don't know if 11 hours of deliberation gets you to the point where 12 people are going to agree on intent. I could be wrong because again, those 12 people also sat day in, day out for three weeks. And I mean, three solid weeks, <laughs> three long weeks listening to evidence and those individuals being human obviously began to formulate their thoughts before walking in that room, before they even got the, uh, the instructions from the judge. How could you not? Those individuals, especially if the verdict is to convict, certainly begin to form an opinion about how they felt both from a legal standpoint, 
both, uh, well, not just both, I would say thrice, from a legal standpoint, from just a purely factual standpoint, as well as from an emotional standpoint, because this was a highly emotional case that was tried in a highly emotional way. I would even go so far as to say that this case was tried in a manner that was quite triggering no matter what side of it you fell on. It was triggering and emotional from, um, from the prosecution standpoint because as distasteful as some people may think that it is year or that it was years from now when as uh Eva Zelson and I predicted this case is certainly going to be in textbooks not because of the situation so much as as it may be because of the way it was tried and this case had while it I do feel like the prosecution walked a very fine line but stayed on it of presenting both the emotional side and the emotional human side, as well as the factual side. Um, it was again, very triggering. They, as, as I was about to say in terms of um, skirting the bounds of good taste and decency, the video. As difficult as it may have been, and I, I just said it literally to a friend this morning, I cannot begin to imagine being a friend, family member, or even someone who's totally unrelated, but who witnessed the situation that day, because then they live through it, sitting through this trial, sitting through that courtroom, even with doing what I do in seeing some of the things that I have seen. And there, there, they've been some ugly, there have been some ugly things. That video alone, so triggering, so jarring to see it played over and over again, long form, short form, pieces of it, slow motion, still shots, effective, yes, had to be done, yes, triggering and difficult to the point of probably uh, jurors potentially having trouble sleeping when this is all over, I believe that that could happen too. The defense, of course, because of the nature of their case, went an entirely different way. I don't honestly see however much it may have angered some folks. I don't honestly see what else they could have done in terms of how they attempted to pull apart the prosecution's case. I think the defense, um, I'm sure there'll be defense attorneys who again will argue this issue as well um, for you know months and years to come about uh, whether or not the defense put on the best case that they could have or how effective their case was. But what else can you do? As, as a friend of mine has often said, you can try and put, you know, polish up a piece of shit as much as you want. At the end of the day, 
it's still a piece of shit. Just might be shinier, but you know, still shit. It is what it is. Um, and unfortunately, in this case, for at least unfortunately for the defense, that's what they had. Evidence to the contrary, notwithstanding, you had a video up close and personal. Even as horrible and as angering as the Rodney King video was, because that was one of the first times that we saw, that was one of the first times that this phenomenon of seeing these crimes and this brutality being committed on a national and international scale, Rodney King was, was it. Um, of course, you have people who see these things in person, who talk about what they've seen in their neighborhood, but I'm talking about capturing the world. But even with the Rodney King video, there was some distance because, you know, we didn't have the body cam footage. Remember, that was just a camera from a distance. You had the distance. So you had people who, of course, were able to attempt to argue with the police about what he may or may not have done as it relates to swinging at the officers and arguments that there were points where he got the best of the um of the the main officers who were involved in his beating you got all of that kind of stuff and of course we saw a little bit of that here too but again however it started is the, the way that it ended up that matters and so even with the Rodney King case, as blatant as that was, as horrible as it was, and I think for most of us, just the sheer number of individuals involved in his beating basically told the story of what that was and how that should have all played out in the, in the courtroom because there was a bit of distance, it let people who wanted to make arguments to the contrary and people such as the jury in that case who wanted to have something to sink their teeth into to be that one, two, three, or however many people that voted not guilty, the distance alone gave them the opportunity to do that. Oh, we didn't see exactly what happened. We didn't see when he grabbed somebody's stick or when he supposedly reached for somebody's gun. In this particular case, it was up close and personal from several angles. And that was a hard one to get away from. And while I do agree with one of the statements that, oh, let me take a little snap of this. Well, I do agree with one of the statements that the defense attorney made about the fact that um, you can't just focus on the last nine minutes and 29 seconds without looking at the entirety of that nine minutes and 29 seconds plus the 16 minutes and 20 seconds or whatever it was, but it was like 16 minutes plus that came before that. The defense attorney in me 
says, absolutely, that's true. And certainly in his place, hell, what else do you have to say? I would have said the same exact thing. You can't. If we're going to talk about uh, looking at all of the circumstances, then we have to look at all of the circumstances. But what undercuts that argument? And that is, and this is where the, the issue and the problem that for the defense you're going to have over and over again is that no matter what happened before, no matter how many different ways you try to artfully make him the big, scary black man, because let's face it, that's really what this defense was about painting him as the big, scary black man. No matter how many different ways you try to do that, constantly talking about his size, constantly talking about his weight, comparing uh, Officer Chavin's uh, body type and body weight to his and some of the other ones, showing the tussle, um, making sure that you focused a lot of the camera um, focused a lot of the video on parts that really didn't have any, because uh, if he thinks that I missed it, I did not. There was a lot of times where the defense focused the video on parts that really didn't have much to do with the actual uh, impact of what George Floyd was allegedly doing that made this uh, that made this um, takedown, if you will, be required. What they did was constantly uh, show footage that showed him breathing heavily. We saw a lot of the, uh, and, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. So when you keep doing that, and combining that with constantly mentioning his size and his weight, what are you doing? You are trying to display him as some big angry monster that we should all be afraid of. If you didn't peep it, go back. It is fairly obvious. Not every one of those videos really showed us anything about what he was trying to convey as it relates to this is why they had to put him on the ground. Not at all. It was to make sure, or even the whole thing with his breath. Uh, and if you want, if the whole point of showing that he was caught, still calling for his mama, I think at like eight minutes or something like that, was to drive point, drive home the point that if you can speak, you can breathe. Then show the timestamp, show that he could speak. Therefore. If that is the theory, he could breathe. But to show like seconds and minutes of the, oh, oh, and then constantly mentioning the size and weight, that was very obvious. It was very obvious baiting. It was very obvious bias. And it was actually trying to tap into that unconscious and it on some levels, as we know as African-Americans, especially if you have men in your family and, and, and also being a woman, not just the unconscious, but also the conscious bias about the scary black man 
and how they act and what they do, this animal thing that's inside of them that comes out of them. No different than the unconscious or sometimes very conscious bias of black women that we're going to pop off all the time or you have to watch how you handle her because you know the next thing you know she'll be neck wagging and point her finger in your face like one of the housewives so we know what it was that the defense was attempting to tap into with all of that but again your tactics are your tactics. The prosecution was going for emotional. The defense was hoping that at the end of the day, there is somebody who would go, okay, emotions notwithstanding, this is still somebody who we should be afraid of. And, the, and, and, and somebody that is so scary that even police officers who carry guns, who are there in force, should be afraid of. And I get it. You got to, you know, I, I suppose you got to, he, he's certainly never going to admit that that was part of the tactics, but it is. I, I mean, it, it really is. Just like one of the things that he did in closing, which um, I said on Facebook is a tactic that I've used myself, which is to go into pointing out that individuals, that different perspectives create a, a plethora of views and not just views as in, you know, you're seeing it from a different angle, but viewpoints in terms of how certain situations may affect you. And then, and thus, how you view what happened based on where you are looking at it. Kind of like how you view the world is colored by where you come from, how you grew up and all of those things. Well, this is an extension of the same thing. If you're standing in one angle, then you know your view may have been that he was the total victim, blah, 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 blah. If you're standing at a different angle, particularly if you're looking at it from the viewpoint of the actual police officer involved in the event, so you're looking at their body cam, then you would understand why they may be concerned. Um, that again, depending on your point of view, that that is going to certainly affect how uh, not only how you see this situation, but how you feel about it. And that is going to then color your recollection of events when you testify, which goes to something else that Eva and I talked about on uh, Sunday about why in many cases, or well, not in many cases, just in cases in general, that eyewitness testimony is inherently unreliable. Okay, Judd Cahill is on the bench. I'm going to go live and we're going to listen together. So don't hang up. I am putting this on for all of us. Okay, Judge is looking at the verdict forms. I'll stop talking when they start. Just don't want dead air. Right now, if you're just listening to me and you're not looking, okay, they have All told right, Mr. Chauvin to stand. Okay, here we go. 
that moving around is not me, it's the courtroom. Okay. Oh, I forgot. The jury wasn't even in there yet. So they all stood for the jury. The way the judge sat down and started reading, I just thought the the uh, verdict was already on his desk. So he's going into the envelope. This is standard stuff, nothing fancy, just because it's on television. This is the way it happens. The jury puts it in a sealed envelope. The verdict says they will appear in the permanent records of the 4th Judicial District. State of Minnesota, County of Hennepin, District Court, 4th Judicial District, State of Minnesota Plaintiff versus Derek Michael Chauvin, Defendant. Verdict, Count 1, Court File Number 27, CR 20-12646. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to Count 1, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th wow. April 2021 at 1.44 p.m. That is so the most serious of eight. all of the charges. Same caption, verdict count two. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count two, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April Third-degree murder, guilty. At 1.45 p.m. Signed by jury four-person juror number 19. That was the easy one I told you Same all about. caption, verdict count three. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count three, second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April 2020. Okay, guilty on all three charges. Jury four-person 019. Members of the jury, I'm now going to ask you individually if these are your true and correct verdicts. Please respond yes or no. Juror number two, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number nine, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number this 19, is what they call polling the jury. Verdicts? Yes. Juror number 27, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 44, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 52, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 55, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 79, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. I know these numbers sound crazy, but that is that was their jury pool number, so they never changed. Are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 91, are these your true and correct verdicts? Welcome, Fergie. Yes. Juror number 92, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Are these your verdicts? So say you want, so say you all. Yes. Members of the jury, I find that uh, the verdicts as read reflect the will of the jury and will be filed accordingly. I have to thank you on behalf of the people of the state of Minnesota okay. for not only jury service, but heavy duty jury service. What I'm going to ask you to do now is to follow the deputy back into your usual room and I will join you in a few okay, minutes. Okay, so. And to advise you further. So I'll rise for the jury. It looks like in the state of Minnesota, and I apologize for not checking this earlier that sentencing is done solely by the judge it appears that he is going to go and uh, personally thank them for their service afterwards and um and set a date for sentencing Yes. on the Blakely factors, the factual findings. 
one week after that. We'll order a PSI immediately, returnable in four weeks. And we will also have a briefing on after you get the PSI six weeks from now and then eight weeks from now we will have sentencing. Okay. We'll get you the exact dates. Uh, That's fairly standard stuff. I'll explain a little bit more about uh, some of the specifics in a moment. Okay, so it appears from what uh, it just a cursory view, uh, it appears that uh, because we don't, well, everybody calls it something different, but we don't do this here in Virginia. So I am giving you a very, very um, cursory view, but okay, I got it. Give me a second. Okay. Okay, so Blakely factors in this in in uh, in every state does things differently. Blakely factors are any factors that either side feels should, uh, and these are presented pre-sentencing. There are any factors that may go towards arguing as to why the judge should go beyond whatever that person's, if there's a mandatory minimum or any mandatory sentencing guidelines, if this is a state that uses them, Blakely, uh, the Blakely factors allows them to provide briefs to, um, well, the Blakely factors is information that each side would put into their briefs to say, of course, if it's the prosecution, this is why you should do it. And of course, the defense, for obvious reasons, this is why you shouldn't. A PSI is a pre-sentence investigation. It is done by probation. It is very, very comprehensive. And it is something that if you are smart and if you have good counsel, which he does, that not only will they cooperate fully with, but make sure they contribute to very well. Because what happens is the probation has this huge questionnaire. They also interview you. They get information about family history. If you have parents who are still living is good to have them cooperate. So they're giving firsthand information. So probation puts together that report, which both sides get, which is why he said that's returnable in six weeks, even though the sentencing is in eight weeks, because obviously uh, everybody gets a copy of it so they can review it. There is no doubt that both sides, particularly the, the defense, the prosecution may or may not do it, will more than likely, especially given the seriousness of this case and the amount of time that he is facing, will uh, certainly present to the court a, um, a pre-sentence memo. Now, a pre-sentence memo can take on <laughs> many forms depending on 
Uh, and I'm right now because I don't want to keep, keep clicking around on you all and clicking your ears. But if my recollection serves, let me look, because again, I had this um, written down. Uh, second degree uh, carries about 40 years. Um, I do know that the third degree murder is just 10 years. And um, the uh, second degree manslaughter falls somewhere in between. So uh, he is facing a lot of time. And if the court does consecutive as opposed to um, doing, uh, if the court does consecutive, which means that each of his sentences would run one behind the other as opposed to concurrent where each of his sentences would run in concert with the other, then you know, of course you want concurrent sentencing, but if they run consecutive, then the person on MSNBC is right. It, it is certainly the possibility that he could not see the light of day uh, or, or just be in jail for the better part of the rest of his life, if not the rest of his life. So that is, um, wow. I, I must say, uh, I did not expect the second degree. If you were listening earlier, I certainly expected the third degree manslaughter. I absolutely expected the second degree manslaughter. But this is this goes back to what I was uh, talking about a few minutes ago, that these individuals have been stuck in that courthouse listening to this for so long that you can't help it. You begin to make up your mind before you walk in that room. That is why you do an initial vote as soon as you go in, because why waste any time? That is also why, um, as, as Eva and I talked about, if these deliberations went longer than, than two days, then I felt like the prosecution was going to be in trouble because this is one of those, if it quacks like a duck is a duck. It was really a matter of whether or not they were going to take the easy way out and just stick with the charges where there was no, where they didn't have to wrestle with the issue of intent or whether, or, or if they took the tough road, which is to actually struggle with that. And I think that this is where we have to applaud the prosecution in terms of what they did and, and in terms of how they put on this trial so systematically from moment one, taking you inside of it as if you were watching a movie. And this is uh, part of the reason why I said that this was such a textbook way uh, on both sides, quite frankly, in terms of putting on a case and also uh, made it rather riveting for something that for most people is is pretty dry, starting with the 911, because that's where it starts, right? Starting with the 911 situation and then building on that part to go to um, the witnesses there and then building on that, what happens when the police come and then the investigators come and then going into the medic, uh, the individual who pronounced him dead. Then when you get to the medical examiner and pathology and so on and so forth. And then of course, in the midst of that, also dealing with 
the, the police officers, when they did their investigation, the techniques, the training, all of that, the building of that case and building it in such a way, especially for people who are so used to watching television and those and, and you know, living life in 152 characters a minute. It was done very, very well to take you inside of it. And I think in them doing that in this, I'm talking about the prosecution in doing that so systematically and, and while at it, at each point, continuing to show the video and to remind the jury, especially when you're talking about police procedure, especially when you're talking about all the medical stuff, to continue to remind the jury that at each of these stages, we are coming back to the fact that no matter who George Floyd was, what he did, as I said on Twitter, it doesn't matter whether he uh, whether he used drugs, whether he had a heart condition, whether or not he was a one-eyed, one-horse flying purple people eater. It didn't matter because none of that would have resulted in his death un until there was a knee on his neck. In fact, I go back to something that the defense said themselves, which, it, and it was incredible to me that he said it because I was like, E, do you realize what you just said? And when the defense said he did all of those things and, you know, he, he did all of those things uh, and he didn't die. So, you know, he, and I'm sitting here like, uh, are you working for the prosecution? Yes, he was a big guy. Yes, he he took drugs maybe even that day. Yes, he was not in the best of health. Hell, who is? He was a six foot six black guy. Okay, he may have had a heart issue. Yes, but what was different that day? That's probably not a question that you should ask because what was different that day is that someone had their knee on his neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds. That is what was different that day. And that is something that you can't get away from no matter what medicals, even when you talk about the potential, um, when they tried to allude to potential carbon monoxide poisoning from an exhaust pipe, which they didn't even have any data on. Okay, let's say you did. Let's say he actually had data to say that there was some abnormal ingestion of carbon monoxide poisoning. How would he have ended up on the ground long enough for that to happen? Could it be that he was held there with a... a uh, with a knee on his neck, gasping for air. So if you're in front of a tailpipe, you're like probably sucking in more than you normally would. But none of that really matters because you can't take away that knee. And that unfortunately is was the problem that the defense had with this situation from the beginning. No matter what you do, you can't 
take away Chauvin and his knee. Proudly placed on this man's neck, even digging in as he got comfortable. Because heaven forbid he be uncomfortable. And this is, and you know, as a criminal defense attorney, this is an issue that we run into every day, even in cases that aren't even this extreme. When you have a criminal defendant who is saying, let's say uh, it's a robbery case or, you know, maybe even a simple theft or shoplifting case um, of which I've had many. One of the biggest hurdles to get beyond other than, you know, if there's a video or something or you confess because heaven forbid they don't tell the police everything before they ask for counsel. <sighs> Personal pet peeve. But all of that stuff, uh, all of those things notwithstanding, you have a person, I'm sorry, I'm just turning off MSNBC because I didn't want it to be a distraction as I finish up with you all. Um, if we can't remove you from the scene, if we can't remove you from the thing that could be potentially problematic, that is always an uphill battle to climb. And ultimately in this case, no matter what the defense did or how they tried to phrase it, heart, lungs, drugs, war, peace, up, down, in or out, if at no point in any of this, you could not have, you did not have a scenario where officer Shaven, because he was an officer at that time, so let's call it what it was. If off, if you did not have a moment where officer Derek Shaven removed his knee, his body, his body weight, whatever, from this man's neck prior to him losing consciousness, or it, or even after they subdued him. Okay, because even if you want to go down the primrose path and, and you are welcome to do so about George Floyd. Yes, he was a big guy and flailing around and the breathing and, da, 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 and the yelling and all of that. Once he was subdued, as in on the ground, prone position and cuffs on this encounter for all intents and purposes should have been over. At that point, the crowd doesn't matter. Hell, it doesn't even matter what George Floyd said. The encounter as we know it to in terms of how it ended should have been over, but it wasn't. And then you add to the fact that aid wasn't rendered, but we don't even have to get to the fact that aid wasn't rendered because things had already gotten so far out of hand that most people agree, even if they couldn't medically say so, because you need a medical person to pronounce the person dead. But I think for all intents and purposes, you know, this was a wrap before he was on the gurney. And we know that because they couldn't revive him. And he was ultimately pronounced dead by a medical professional. 
And of course, you know, because the police weren't going to do it, they held him down. So unless or until you could remove him, you can remove that situation, you can't do it. And that's what happens in any case, like with the clients, and I particularly mentioned shoplifting and, and those types of cases, because even on a lesser degree, to a lesser degree, so you're going to learn some other tricks of trade today. If I can't get you out of that store, if the circumstances that went down have you in the store, outside the store, in the vicinity, on camera, what have you, we have a problem. Now, the facts may still be on your side. I'm not saying you're automatically guilty because people go in stores and get accused of stuff they didn't do all the time. I am simply saying that from a defense standpoint, now we have a case that we have to fight. Now we have a case where we've got to dig in deeper because I can't remove you from the scene. Why? Because you were actually there. And in this situation, I can't remove you from George Floyd's neck because you were on it and you were on it until he was thrown lifelessly onto a gurney never to be revived. And that no matter what the defense argued was always going to be a problem. This was just a matter of how hard the jury was willing to work to find um, to find intent. And it looks like they probably found it during the uh, during the case. This uh, for 11 hours, that's a decent amount of time. And I mean, minute by minute, I guess that's a long time. But if they wanted to make sure that they did their job, because nobody on that jury walked into that room not knowing um, what the stakes were in this case and um, the serious nature and in any case is serious, but the greater, larger implications of what they were deciding and how thorough they wanted to be able to feel that they were in coming to a decision one way or the other. I would venture to say that they walked into that room knowing they wanted to find him guilty. What they talked about for 11 hours was how, exactly what they were going to find him guilty of. And I stand by that. And I am not going to hold you all any longer. It looks like we ended up going <laughs> exactly an hour. So if you've been here the entire hour, thank you so much for hanging in there with me. Um, it, I, I'm sure this case is going to be talked about uh, ad nauseum, and I'm sure that I'll probably end up talking about it again. I will definitely get Eva back. I've got some other attorney friends chomping at the bit to come in and non-attorney friends chomping at the bit to come in. So I see a panel coming up to discuss this because there are still so many issues to be discussed. I mean, the reality of it is, is that just in Minnesota alone, in the same vicinity of this case. There was a case that was already going on when this happened, particularly the Muhammad Noor case that I mentioned earlier. And then there was a case that occurred barely a week ago with Dante Wright. So the issue that we are facing here 
and that is that constantly comes up again and again or the issues that constantly come up again and again when we talk about cases like Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Tamir Rice, now Dante Wright, um, and, and the countless others, Sandra Bland. These are cases that, um, and some with names that we don't say because we don't know. Um, sadly, the case with the officer in Virginia, thank God that didn't end in murder, but that happened in December. We wouldn't have known if there wasn't a civil case. There's, uh, these happen in little towns, big towns, um, inner cities, suburbs, they happen. And the problem isn't solved with one verdict because that's not how systematic racism works. It is sad to say that that is not how that is not how it's worked. That's not how it works. We can deal with certain issues in the criminal justice system because now we can watch and people feel like they're under a microscope. But that does not change the ills and the poison that has permeated the system, all three branches of government from day one. I also know that the president plans to speak, so that's another reason why I am I am going to go. It's so nice to not have to worry about what the heck the president's going to say every other day. That's going to scare the freak out of us. So, um, but in respect to our commander in chief, for all I know, who's already speaking because I changed screens, I am going to go. Thank you again for hanging out on the Just Jonda LBD. Also, um, please follow me on all social media platforms, particularly Instagram and Twitter at Let's Be Honest, JJ, that's L-E-T-S-B-E-H-O-N-E-S-T, JJ for Just Jonda. You can also join in on our more fun, lighter topics, although I still put this stuff there too, on uh, the Fashion and Drama Diaries on Facebook. I also have email. All the links are there. If you've got any scoop, feel free to send it to me. I vet everything. So if it's trash, don't send it. If you're being an asshole, don't send it. But if you've got some good juice, whether it's about this, celebrity stuff, whatever, feel free to send it to me or let me know what's going on in your world that Just Jonda can dig into for a good juicy LBD because I'm not everywhere, although I want to be, so I don't always know what's going on in your neck of the woods. Follow me on all platforms and be sure to go on iTunes and leave us five stars and comments. And remember, if you're thinking about it and want to talk about it, chances are I'm thinking about it and want to talk about it too. So let's be honest together. Have a good one.